Some of the things that stir our souls aren't always found in the culture we're born into. At an early age, Osa Danielson knew that being Swedish wouldn't stop her from learning to dance like they do in Andalusia in Spain. And I saw these women, and they were so strong and passionate, and I decided I wanted to be a flamenco dancer. I had no idea what it meant. American Will McGrath followed his wife on an assignment to the small nation of Lesotho in southern Africa. They had to adjust to a slower pace of life, but it was also one where people have time to become your friend. It's certainly not uncommon to be, you know, walking down the road and you meet someone and before you realize that you're holding hands with the person walking down the road. Plus, listeners share some embarrassing moments from mistakes they made and learned from in their travels. Flamenco, Four Seasons in Lesotho, and Traveler's Faux Pas are all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. Many little girls dream of being a ballerina. In a minute, we'll talk to a woman who dreamed of being a flamenco dancer when she was growing up in Sweden. And travel writer Will McGrath tells us about what he calls a spirit of joyful absurdity that he and his wife found when they moved to one of the least talked about countries on earth, Lesotho. It's the kind of place where it's not uncommon for a friendly stranger to take you by the hand and shock you by telling you some of the dirtiest jokes in the southern hemisphere. We'll find out what it was like to be part of a small town in the mountains of Lesotho in just a bit. And later in the hour, listeners tell us about the cultural faux pas they've encountered in their travels and what they learned from it. It's a long way from Stockholm to Seville, but it never dampened Osa Danielson's lifelong enthusiasm for the fiery traditions of Andalusia. Today, she teaches the art of flamenco dancing in between tour guiding in Sweden and Spain. Osa, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. So how did a Swedish woman get all excited about flamenco? It's in the opposite end of Europe. It is, it is for sure. I was uh, a little girl when somehow I picked up that flamenco existed. And when I went to Spain for the first time with my mother, I was six years old. I told my mother I went to see flamenco. And I saw these women and they were so strong and passionate. And I decided I wanted to be a flamenco dancer. I had no idea what it meant. But that dream, I kept it alive through my whole childhood. I had bought this little doll you know, with the polka dot yes. dress and everything, a plastic doll, and I had it at home, like a little altar. <laughs> and I knew that I was going to be a flamenco dancer when I was big. So you were you were six. You're a little bit older than that now. Yeah, a bit, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and are you dancing, or what? what is flamenco in your life today? Teaching, performing. I was the president of the Swedish Flamenco Society for some 10 years. I've organized festivals. I've organized workshops. I've been wow. a tour manager of one of the most uh, famous flamenco dancers. All, all that you can think of. You know, I cannot think of any two more opposite cultures in a temperament <laughs> kind of way of Sweden and southern Spain, where it's the heartland of flamenco. I think it's opposites attract. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Spain is the favorite country of the Swedes to visit, to travel to. And why would that be? I think it's that it's got all those, it has the sun, it has the laid back, uh, passionate lifestyle that you need a little doses of 
when you uh, live every up in the year. north. Exactly, the very, yeah. exactly. Maybe you don't want to have all of it all the time. You that, want a little bit more structure and that's calm. That's so Swedish. So you can go down and have it, exactly. and then you can go back to your normalcy and your regimentation yeah. and exactly. your efficiency. There's a word in flamenco culture, duende, right? Duende, yes. What does that mean? It means that uh, special state of mind that you get into when you're doing flamenco. Hopefully, it is not something that happens all the time. And if what it is, is that? Because I can just see the, the the motions of the of the singer and the dramatic. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been written poetry about it, so many different ways of describing it. But I would just say like this total focus where you lose everything. It's like you're right here, right now. You're inside the music and you're just, it's just a complete presence. It's almost when you are in a great flamenco moment when the song is done, Mm -hmm. people let out. They go... Ole, Ole, yes. Love it, you know, and it's and not just put on to make the other tourist clap. It's like, no, oh, baby. it's a release. It's, it's a, a release. Re- yeah. I'm, I'm feeling it right now yeah. because I want that when I go to flamenco, oh, yeah. and I get it because yeah. I let myself be swept away with it. And it's actually the way the music is built up that creates that crescendo, and everybody goes like, and it finishes, and it's like, Ole, you did that right with the, yeah. you got that. <laughs> Do me the snaps again. <laughs> oh, the Swedish flamenco uh, yeah. duende. All right. So you take groups down there. You've organized tours mm-hmm. for a traveler who wants to experience flamenco. I mean, I know there's a touristy flamenco show in Barcelona, but mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine there's certain cities that you really want to be sure to to check out flamenco. Absolutely. Where do you go from, from flamenco? Well, I, the flamenco is very intimately connected with the south of Spain, right. Andalusia, although not only. You can find great flamenco in, in Madrid, of course, the capital, and also in, in Barcelona. But in the south, that's where flamenco lives. Like you, you can go by some construction workers and some of them are singing, humming flamenco, and you walk by some little girls and they're clapping. And it's just there everywhere. It breathes flamenco. And and the capital of flamenco, in my opinion, is Sevilla. Sevilla. Which is the capital of Andalusia, which is the right. southern region. And that's where you can find flamenco four or five performances every oh, yeah. night for oh, the yeah. tourist and, and much more. Wissa Danielson from Stockholm is telling us about her love of traditional Spanish dance right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She teaches flamenco and has won a number of awards for her expertise with the art form. There's all the tourist shows, which mm-hmm. I find are very good. They're, yeah. they're at a reasonable hour. They're designed to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're quality, and they're not expensive. Absolutely. I think the, the greatest names often go to Madrid at the big houses. No, they also go to Sevilla, and, and they also. also go to the small places. But you could basically say that you have the tourist shows, and then you have the big performances, which okay. takes place on the theaters. That's where the big names come. Where would you go? What venue would you prefer for that? I check which artists. Who they are, because you know the Yo, names. Of course, I would prefer a big name coming to give a concert. Then all the local flamencos would come there. They would be full of flamenco students. It would be full of flamenco lovers from, say, talking about Sevilla or Jerez de la Frontera or wherever you go. It will be full of those people. So you will be part of this this experience where the audience has such an important role. So it's role. a big concert so, hall. I mean, yeah. this is not a place that has flamenco every Tuesday. This no, is just no. a special concert. Yeah, yeah. They, they might have every every Thursday or so, but this is not a place where you find a lot of tourists. No. But that is the big one, the big shows, the big performances, the big artists. But then you have the peñas. Peñas are the local organizations right. of 
aficionados, those people that are so passionate about this culture, and they don't want to make any profit. They just want yeah. to keep this culture alive. And these performances are usually later. Yeah. And that is where you can find the most magnificent. That's the magic. Any yes. tourist can go to the seven o'clock yeah, performance yeah, yeah. with English and German introductions. Exactly. You know. But I know when I go back to my hotel at midnight in Sevilla, if yeah. I walk three blocks further, there's a Good. bar where there's a spontaneous gathering of mm-hmm. flamenco aficionados. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think it's free. You just buy a drink. That is a different type. So yeah. the peñas, they will set up performances. And the whole audience will be full of flamenco people. Ah. And there will be, everybody will be doing the oles in the right place. And they will be full of this, what we call jaleos, or these shout-outs that really encourage the artists. It might be the same artist that was performing before at 7 o'clock for the Germans. Oh, yeah. But the flamenco that you will see in these peñas will be so different because the whole audience is with it and you will see how they really get into duende. So that's a happening. It's it a collective. Is, it is Everybody's happening. together. It's a performance and you'll pay an entrance Okay. and you'll have to go online and check. Okay. I'm going to look for that because that sounds like we're going to take the tourist performance to a higher level. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Osa Danielson from Stockholm who clearly is passionate about flamenco. Also, when we think about flamenco in the true sense, we've got different elements of flamenco. We've got the feet, we've got the clapping, we've got the snapping, we've got the castanets, we've got the shouting, we've got the guitar. Talk a little bit about what distinguishes great flamenco in regards to these elements. So the basic, the three most important one is the singing, the guitar and the dancing. And then the other things are supporting. So the clapping is to keep everybody together. And the snapping is just percussion, like decorations. Okay. Castanets are not so common that people would think. They are used in some parts, but I, for example, I, I don't play castanets and okay. I've never done. Yeah, you use, use this. The interesting thing is how these relate to each other. It's all improvised, but mm-hmm. it's improvised in a way that is it follows some strict rules. And the dancer is like the director, the musical director. Okay. So you will, if you know this, you will look at the guitarist. You will look how the guitarist is looking at the feet of the dancer. They're following the dancer who is making rhythmical codes to show the musicians that are sitting behind where we're going, which part is the next part. So you will see a flamenco dancer come in, and then at some point they will do a stumping scene, yeah. which is saying to the singer, now you can start. The singer will not start before they're getting the clearance, the call-out from the dancer. And then it's the singer's turn. And when the singer's in focus, everybody is following the singer. So I've been mesmerized by the sort of the machine gun wrapping of the heels on the floor. And that is actually giving signals to the ensemble. Yes. Yeah. And it's total focus from everybody. And the main focus swifts from the different people in the ensemble. But the one keeping it all together, it's the dancer. And then the heritage. Where did this come from? This comes from the cultural mix that the south of Spain So in the south of is. Spain you've got gypsies, you've got Moors. Uh, yeah, you get the Jews, you get the court dances, this unique mix that has been brewed. Is it healthy today or is it threatened? No, it's very healthy. Absolutely. It's become a world phenomenon. It's, it's a UNESCO World Heritage uh, treasure And when since you go to Spain, years. you can put that on your list and you can enjoy it. You have different options. We've got the piña. <gasps> 
We've got the the simple uh, tourist shows. Yeah. Uh, we've got the spontaneous eruptions of that spirit in the bar. And that is the most difficult one, to get to find one of those spontaneous moments yeah. that is the most magic of them all. And that's very rare. And if you get an opportunity to see that, that is something absolutely unique. get an unique. extra glass of wine and enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Osa Danielson, thank you so much. Uh, I'll say taksimika in Swedish, but also <laughs> say gracias in Spanish De for nada. helping us better understand flamenco. Ole. We have a link to Osa Danielson's tour guiding services in Stockholm with the notes on this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Donnie Willett sends us a batch of haiku written from a window seat on a flight from San Diego to Nice, France. Here's what the view was like. The earth cracked and split, a maze called the Grand Canyon, river's course defined, Patches round and square, farmers' geometric art, patterns on the earth. Seventy below, ice crystals on the window, evidence of cold. Lily pads of ice floating in frigid waters, not a place for frogs. Walk upon the clouds, body's impossible dream, playground of my mind. Send us haiku impressions from your travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Up next, we find out what it's like to move to a country that's about as different from your American life as possible. Will McGrath tells us about the world he experienced living in the high mountains of Lesotho. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. What have you heard about Lesotho? Chances are not much. Even as a well-informed public radio listener in the Twin Cities, Will McGrath didn't know what to expect when he and his wife got ready to work on an assignment in the small, landlocked country surrounded by South Africa. Will chronicles their adventures and the people he met in his book, Everything Lost is Found Again, Four Seasons in Lesotho. Will McGrath, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. This is really exciting to be on the show. Well, it's exciting for me to talk to somebody who's been to Lesotho, because honestly, I've always looked at the map and I've, I see those little dots in South Africa. First of all, how does South Africa happen, which is a, a very strong and you know powerful country, there's a couple of little countries like this, right, embedded in the middle of the country. Yes, yeah, Swaziland is kind of tucked over by the side, and they have a little bit of... Mozambique, I believe, bordering one side of them. Mm -hmm. But Lesotho is totally encapsulated. It's its own enclave nation right there in the middle of South Africa. Is it kind of like we'd have an Indian reservation in the middle of the United States that was a, considered a country? Yeah, that I mean, that might be an interesting parallel there. The history of it kind of comes from this first king of Lesotho, who was a guy named Mshweshwe, King Mshweshwe I who was a very charismatic leader of the nation there. He kind of got the country started back in the mid-1850s. He had gathered various tribes and kind of farmer collectives all together in this area and developed this nation. And uh, over time, there were 
had conflicts with various other tribes, eventually conflicts with the British. And over all the years, Meshwe Shwe was able to maintain this sense of national identity there. And hmm. after having a couple encounters with the British and repulsing the British, eventually came to an agreement with them to say, hey, we, we are willing to work out an, an agreement with you guys and become a British protectorate, but we want to maintain our sense of national identity. Oh, okay. And roughly how big is Lesotho and how many people live there? So there's about... Two million people there, and I've seen some comparisons saying it's about the size of Maryland, okay. something like that. So it's not, not that too tiny. big of a place. It's not that tiny, yeah. but I guess compared to South Africa, it looks small, but that's a substantial amount of land. To drive across it, would it be like 50 miles across or, or 100 miles across? Uh, I think it's bigger than that, mm -hmm. but the issue in that is it's very mountainous country. Right. And so the roads, once you get up into the mountains, the roads are very rough. And so it can take a long time to get from one side of the country to another. Generally speaking, when we would come into the capital city of Maseru and where we were living, which is a, a very rural area called Mohotlong, it would take pretty much most of a day to get from one side of the country to the other. You know, other. that's one thing travelers need to remember. If you've been in Germany and you, you're going to go from A to B, there's probably going to be an autobahn there and you're going to average 80 miles an hour. Uh, I remember when I was going from A to B in India or Nepal, I averaged six miles an hour. I mean, I remember it took me, I thought, oh, 60 miles, that's not long. It took me 10 hours. And that's not because there's traffic jams. It's just that's the way it is. So in right. much of the developing world anyways, uh, you got to be really conservative about how much ground you can cover in a given amount of time. Will McGrath introduces us to Lesotho in his book, Everything Lost is Found Again. His website is willmcgrath.net. So, Will, how did it happen that you ended up living in Lesotho? So my wife is a cultural anthropologist, and her research is based there in the country of Lesotho. She does work with AIDS and HIV, and she does work with family structures and kinships and child care and orphan care. Hmm. And so, unfortunately, Lesotho sits at this intersection of her two main research interests. So that's initially what brought us there, was looking at how families are adapting to the HIV pandemic. And you there. went along and, as the spouse and you're a writer and you decided to write a book? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I was necessarily thinking of writing a book from the beginning, but I was excited to go along and learn about this place that I knew nothing about and, you know, to see a very different part of the world from, from what I knew. So yeah, I was initially along, kind of along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And then Along the way, I did things like I taught high school for a while there, and we were both kind of connected with the, a local NGO in this rural area, so I would help out at this place sometimes. So tell us the gist of your book, Everything Lost is Found Again. Uh, what, what inspired you to suddenly say, I'm going to put pen to paper and share what I'm learning, or what, what's your agenda with the book? Yeah, well, I think in the West we have, we have very stereotyped notions about what Africa is. And I'm kind of using, you know, air quotes around that word in general. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, to really look at what was this country, this very specific part of Lesotho, 
in a certain way, I was inspired by, there's a Nigerian writer, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She wrote an essay a couple years back about how in the West we have the single story of Africa. You know, all we kind of know is this cliched notion of general tragedy, some sort of generalized suffering in some way. So that was so different from what I encountered there over our time there. So I, I wanted to be part of the solution to what Adichie is writing about, to avoiding this single story of mm-hmm. Africa. I wanted to get into what the, you know, the specifics of this gorgeous country of Lesotho and to really kind of get into the granularity of the human experience of what life is like there and especially to celebrate, you know, the joyfulness that I saw there. I mean, it would be wrong to look away or to ignore certain tragedies that are happening. You can't avoid that. But I think it's important to represent and celebrate all the good things that happen to show the kind of happy, hilarious, mundane parts of life. That's something that I think is is really a challenge for a lot of us because in America, we think uh, well-being is preceded by material, your material well-being. And there's not a lot of material in well-being in, in much of the world. And uh, we can, uh, if we find a joyfulness in the poor world, we can we can tend to romanticize it. Uh, but I think there is a lot of joy in a world where people would never own a car or, or have a, a, a fancy house. And you don't yeah. get that unless you go there and you sit around. You talked about people telling dirty jokes. I mean, <laughs> just, it's so interesting to think of an American yeah. going to Lesotho and laughing at dirty jokes. These people are, you talked about sweet people telling the dirtiest jokes. What did you mean? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when I worked at the high school, I had just a hilarious cohort of teachers that I worked with there, just excellent colleagues and excellent friends. And they, you know, knew I was trying to learn the language and knew that I was, you know, invested in kind of really embedding myself in the culture as much as possible. So they did often find time to teach me, you know, many hilarious, dirty jokes that were they (laughs) just like ours, but with a different cultural context? Yeah, well, (laughs) so I'm thinking about how much that I can say on air here. But one of the basic things is the name of the country itself, Lesotho, is a double entendre for the female genitals. Mm. So there are plenty of hilarious puns that could be made that the people that I worked with delighted in, you know, teaching me these funny, dirty jokes. And it probably just takes you back because you're inclined to, oh, we're, we're coming here to work on AIDS and we're coming here to work on uh, orphanages or, or whatever. And then you find people that laugh at the same humor. Uh, you talked about how you played a game of Scrabble and you were going to be careful not to like clean their clock because you're this <laughs> well-educated American. And it turns out they uh, humbled you, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's always, <laughs> when you're living abroad, there are always great, moments uh, for humility and (laughs) personal understanding of your limits. So yes, I went into the daily Scrabble game with my fellow teachers. Perhaps you might say I was overconfident in my abilities uh, and was 
very quickly disabused of <laughs> any mm. any skill I so, had there. So they could whoop you in Scrabble in English, not in their in language. English. Yeah. And in then, English, yes. So then you've been, you've been sort of uh, humbled there, and you're walking home, and you write, write about how a perfect stranger can come up and hold your hand as you're walking down the street. Yeah, you know, there's a, a very different sense of physical intimacy there, I think. You know, it's it's certainly not uncommon to be, you know, walking down the road and you meet someone and they'll ask, you know, they'll ask about what you're doing in the country, what you've come for. Hmm. And before you realize that you're holding hands with the person walking down the road. I absolutely and, love that. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the first time it happens, it's a little disconcerting because, you know, in America, in the West, I think we're a bit cagier about our physical boundaries. But, you know, it happens a few times. It happens twice, three times. By the third or fourth time, you know, you're just kind of happily strolling down the road, holding hands with a perfect stranger. And, you know, you on the other side of the street, there's two policemen walking down the road and they're holding hands. And it's just, there's something very beautiful about you know, the sense of physical connection and the physical intimacy once you move past your own preconceptions about those things. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the country of Lesotho, and we're talking with writer Will McGrath, who spent almost two years living in this mountainous nation surrounded by South Africa. He shares his adventures in his book, Everything Lost is Found Again, Four Seasons in Lesotho. His website is willmcgrath.net. And that's M-C-G-R-A-T-H. So, Will, you and your wife fly in, and uh, two white people in a country that is almost entirely black? Is that the case? So you were really minorities. Yeah. What was that like, yeah, walking we were... down the street? Is that a plus or a minus if you are the only white people in town? I mean, it is. it first is uh, It's interesting because everyone is staring at you, so you're very much a focal point going down the road. But it quickly becomes apparent that, you know, any staring is not done with any menace. It's just that people are kind of curious to see you. You know, the country is, so the the people who live there are the Basutu people, and the country is 99.7 ethnically homogeneous Basutu. Hmm. So you're certainly a very, very small minority of the population there. Can you smile and get a smile back? Or is that is it that kind of isolation where you just feel like um, they don't think well of me? I mean, my way of going through the world sometimes, I think, is those situations you can disarm with a kind of smiley goofiness uh, of, of demeanor. So that is definitely how I approach those situations. Still, it is, it is a little unsettling the first time you walk down the road yeah. and every every mm -hmm. person is staring at you but you get used to it over time and then you know and where we were living in this very small mountain town after a little while people recognize you and kind of realize you're around for a while and there's nothing all that interesting about you <laughs> so you're in this country it's landlocked in south africa it's a high plateau i understand it's uh, thousands of feet above sea level um, yeah, it's rugged. It's mostly mountainous. There's waterfalls, rivers cutting through rugged and beautiful scenery, as you write about in your book. The capital city is uh, Masiru. It's modern. It's like any Western city, you said, but smaller, very contemporary. But you drive out and you get yourself into another world in the countryside. And you stayed in a in a small town. 
uh, Mohatlong. Describe your, mm-hmm. your hometown. So yeah, it's it's well up in the mountains. You know, around us, the land gets up to 11,000 feet is the highest point nearby. Hmm. And most of it's around 9,000 feet. And it's just kind of rugged, bucolic land. There's a lot of people there are shepherds. So you'll be driving down the road and you see shepherds on horseback or riding on donkeys, or a lot of times just young herd boys kind of moving their big flocks through the mountains. So that's kind of a time warp. That hasn't changed over the centuries. It definitely feels like you are at times encountering things from a different century. And the housing out in the rural areas is in Rondevals, which is kind of a, it's a round hut with a thatched roof. And they're usually made of rock, you know, kind of a rock Hmm. wall with a plaster over it. But so in, that's in town, standard... in town, you had a cinder block house with a thatched roof, right? Yes, we got a slight, a slightly more modern upgrade in town. So we had cinder block rendezvous with a thatched roof. Does everybody have electricity had... and running water? Is that sort of a we... given, or is that just wealthy people in the towns that have electricity and running water? Yeah, in the town where we were, many people had electricity, and there was running water everywhere. Once you get out to the real rural areas you would often find villages that did not have electricity, but I'm pretty sure everyone had fresh water fairly close at hand. Every every town would have a bunch of taps. Uh, so you might not have it at your house, but mm-hmm. you would go to the local tap and you know fetch some buckets of water. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Will McGrath, and his book is Everything Lost is Found Again, Four Seasons in Lesotho. So, Will, uh, describe the, the, the title here. Everything Lost is Found Again in Four Seasons in Lesotho. What do you mean by that? So, for the four seasons, I wanted to... The, the stories, in a certain way, come up from over many years, but I wanted to shape it into a narrative of a certain sort that people could, mm. you know, easily interact with. But also, I think sometimes when we think of our stereotypes and cliches of what quote-unquote, Africa is, we think hot, you know, jungle, something like that. And Lesotho is very much not like that. Mm. I mean, it's mountainous, and you really experience all the seasons. In the winter where we were, it was often below freezing, and there would be some nights where you would actually get snowfall, which I think is not a common visual of what Africa is like, but we would have snowfall up in the mountains, And then in the summer, it's hot and sunny and dry, and you'll have, you know, kind of a springtime and a fall time. Hmm. But the seasons, I really felt the seasonal change across the year. And it, because I think the landscape is so present, it feels like an intimate part of life, of the kind of outside daily seasonal aspect of the place. So, Will, if a tourist was inspired to go there, could you basically just fly to the capital city and have a little guidebook and stay in guest houses and rent a car and explore the countryside and make friends and enjoy the food? I mean, is it pretty straightforward? It just sounds like a wonderful destination, a friendly place, uh, stable, uh, reasonably safe. If you got money, you can you can uh, live uh, in a nice surroundings uh, and very accessible to meet all the people. Yeah, I mean, I think it could... Um, do people do that? Of, yeah, in terms of tourism, I think you're going to find people there who are interested in kind of 
rugged adventure travel. You know, you can go there and you can rent horses and have people guide you out into the mountains mm -hmm. and into the hillside. I know some people go there. There are big lakes and dams kind of in the interior of the country. And people go there for fishing, kind of mountain fishing situations. So travel-wise and tourism-wise, there are certainly elements like that where you can go experience a very different pace of life and a very different unaltered landscape. We've got more about Lesotho with Wilt McGrath in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Then we check in with your reports about being surprised by faux pas in your travels at 877-333-RICK. We're learning about life in Lesotho from Will McGrath. He's written a book called Everything Lost is Found Again about what he experienced living in the small mountainous kingdom in southern Africa for the better part of two years. Now you described the food as simple, hearty, boring, and repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I should say delicious too. The main staple food there is called papa, which is maize meal. So it's, you know, it's kind of ground up cornmeal and it comes out kind of like a very dense, stiff mashed potato. Over time, it becomes very satisfying and mm -hmm. welcoming to just have a, a hearty meal like that. And then you'll have your greens and some chicken or some mutton. Uh, on the side there. And poor people in the country don't have meat every day, but meat's part of the diet if you go to a restaurant? Yeah, yeah. The, it's definitely, if you're living out in the countryside, you might not have meat every day, but, you know, if you find a guest house, you're definitely going to get meat, you know, nicely seasoned meat with your meal there. Now, every country's got its alcohol and its, um, its favorite, uh, you know, liqueurs. You wrote about a, a drink, a corn beer, Joala? Yeah, so Joala is the, it's kind of the local homebrew there, and it's fermented maize or fermented sorghum. You know, it's it's a very interesting... Fermented maize, <laughs> that's basically rotten corn. Yeah, and it comes <laughs> out kind of like that. It comes out in a kind of thick, almost has a milky quality to it. And if somebody wants to drink for escapism or just to get crazy, they drink this corn beer? In Lesotho? Uh, you could certainly do that. I mean, also any restaurant or any local hotel will have, uh, you know, a stocked bar of beer and wine and You mean alcohol, Western but, beer that we would recognize. But, right, but, right. Uh, but, but people Jameson. in a village who aren't going to spend $3 for a beer, they'll, they'll have this homemade uh, hooch. Yeah, yeah, they'll just have their joala. And it, and it has certain ceremonial purposes as well. Did you ever for, get drunk on it? I never was quite able to drink enough of it <laughs> to to fully to fully go all the way there. It is, you know, I think it's an acquired taste. It's well, one sure. of those things that's it's worth experiencing. I think most things in life are worth experiencing sometime. If local people were drinking too much of it, would they get giddy or violent or sullen or talkative or funny? What what would it be like? Yeah, I think I mean I think people kind of there lean into the humor and the goofiness and that's at least how I kind of read you know, if we're being very general, uh, that's kind of how I read the national mm -hmm. personality as kind of a, you know, a humor forward personality. So that's what I see coming sounds out. Sounds like a, a wonderful sort of uh, just vibe with the, with the people. Of course, your wife is, is passionate about uh, dealing with the AIDS tragedy and, 
Africa has been struggling with AIDS like we can hardly imagine. Uh, what is the AIDS situation in Lesotho, and uh, and how is the progress in that? Yeah, so the tragic aspect is that it usually varies between either the second or third highest country in the world in terms of the HIV prevalence rate for the adult population. So you're talking hmm. about... Lesotho. About, yes, yeah, you're talking about 23% of the adult population. Is that because of a culture of unprotected sex is not a big deal, or is it from sharing needles? You know, that is an issue, especially from an anthropological situation, that is, it's complicated. And a lot of it is based on the fact that the country is you know relatively poor and doesn't have necessarily the infrastructure to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. Also, it's an aspect of migrant laborers going to work in South Africa, and South Africa had mm. an AIDS denialism issue for many years, so people would leave their families and go to South Africa and come back. But it's one of those very thorny and complicated issues mm. where there's no one answer to it, and it's kind of a confluence of many different tricky angles there. Did your wife feel gratified uh, to have a chance to work on that there, or did she feel like she had an impact? Yeah. So her work is mostly research and studying and thinking like, what can we learn about this and how does it... So there, you know, there's there's a danger of, especially from the anthropological mindset, there's a danger in bringing a Western attitude about mm-hmm. some problem and saying, this is the solution here. Mm-hmm. So from her field, she's thinking, what can I learn about how this culture operates and how it interprets this medical problem and how, you know, what can a solution be that works in this place? Minnesota-based writer Will McGrath describes what it was like for him and his wife to live and work in a small community in the mountains of Southern Africa. His book is Everything Lost is Found Again, Four Seasons in Lesotho. His website is willmcgrath.net. And now you've been, uh, you're back in the United States. You spent a couple of years in Lesotho. What do you miss most about Lesotho, and would you ever want to go back? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope to be back before too long. We've been, you know, over the years, we've been back and forth there a bunch of times. But I do miss, especially up in the mountains in the evenings, it's really a glorious pace of life and a kind of meditative uh, way of going about the day. Because after the sunset, many places that don't have electricity, you know, after the sunset, things kind of really start to quiet down and ramp down around the town. So the evenings get very peaceful. And because there's not a ton of exterior artificial light, the night sky there is just absolutely astounding. And the star light that you can see, the amount of constellations, the Milky Way you know, streaks broadly across the sky there. It's just this bright, broad smear of starlight that is unlike anything I personally have encountered in terms of seeing the night sky. So the evenings, they're just beautiful to be out there. You feel very small in a situation like that with the mountains around you and the sky around you. But there's also a deeply peaceful sense in those moments of it feels contemplative and not rushed you know wow darkness settles 
in a quiet village high in the mountains of South Africa in the independent land of Lesotho. Will McGrath, thank you so much for taking us to a little dot on the map that so many of us have wondered about and have not had a chance to visit like you. Thanks so much, Rick. It was it was really just such a delight to talk. And, you know, I, I just love having the opportunity to celebrate this place that I love so much. Is there a favorite word that you like to say? Is there, like you say, aloha in Hawaii or something? Well, so one, one of the things, this is, it's in a certain way kind of, I perceive it as a, a, a motto of the country, but it's on signs when you come into the border and it's on signs up in the rural area. The phrase you'll see on a sign is Kena Kahotso, and that means enter with peace. Hmm. So there's this kind of sense of when you're coming into the country, the philosophy, the mindset is Kena Kahotso. You know, come here peacefully with your eyes open, and you're going to have a good experience. That's something we can put on road signs as you enter every country and, <laughs> and right. every home. Kena, right. what, what is it again? Kena Kahotso. Kena Kahotso. Okay, when I create my utopian language with favorite phrases incorporated from every language on earth, that will make it. Kena Kahotso. <laughs> Thanks again, Will McGrath. Best wishes with your work and congratulations on your book, Everything Lost is Found Again, Four Seasons in Lesotho. Thanks so much. Since our interview, Will and his wife co-authored a book about orphan care and AIDS in Lesotho. It's called Infected Kin and is published by Rutgers University Press. What kind of surprises have you found in your travels? Does that include a faux pas that made things interesting? Right now, let's hear some travel stories from our listeners' cross-cultural exchanges. By the way, given how quickly the news can change on us these days, I'm letting you know that today's program was recorded before the COVID pandemic. Okay, David's on the line in Los Angeles. David, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. We yeah. enjoy your program. Well, thanks for watching and listening. And uh, do you travel perfectly, like never messing up? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we made many mistakes. It's kind of fun to make mistakes, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because you discover something you wouldn't have otherwise found. And you become sometimes a little more approachable to locals who might otherwise not connect with you. That's true, yeah. So, so tell us an example of uh, a little flub you did on the road. This was in southern China in Fujian. We were like the second American family to uh, actually stay there. We stayed there for a whole school year. So English was uh, not spoken very well. And we went into a Chinese restaurant with our daughters, and the daughters loved the beautiful fish, and they, um, they thought it was an aquarium. And the gentleman reached in, threw it down, killed it on the street, which was the custom, so you'd know it was fresh. Um, and my daughters still haven't gotten over the shock. One of them is a full vegetarian ever since. So wait a minute. Your daughter, this is in southern China, your daughter just looked in an aquarium and said, oh, I like the fish. Yes. And the man said, oh, you like it? I'll grab it, kill it, and let you eat it. Yes. Wow. That yeah. was a lesson for her. Yeah. There were also cats and dogs in that market. But like I say, it was a very back area. It wasn't Shanghai. They hadn't had many foreigners there. So It's so interesting to travel in a place where people have not been exposed to foreigners. Every time, yes. I, I, that's happened to me a couple of times, and I just, it's like a wonderland. I was in Turkey once in, uh, in a hotel, and I gave them a postcard, like you do in a hotel for them to mail it, and they looked at it, and they said, very good, and they gave it back to me. 
They thought I was just sharing my postcard with them. It's, there's all sorts of people that you bump into that just don't know how to respond to you. So I guess you got to be careful when you say, yes, you might uh, get something going that you don't intend to get going. Usually it can be worked out. People are very forgiving. Oh, yeah. And uh, next time you're in southern China, if you, if you feel like uh, eating a fish, just say, I like that fish. Exactly. All right, David, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. We'll enjoy listening to the program. Thank ha- you. Happy travels. We've got Rachel on the line, and uh, Rachel's in Chicago. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Very well. Big fan of yours. Thank you for uh, sharing uh, some of your embarrassing moments in travels on our show. Tell us about your story. It always has to do with language, or often. The word in Spanish for preservatives is not the word that sounds like it. So one of my friends actually did a first, and then I was extra careful, and then did it again myself, where she was at dinner with a number of friends and remarked on how everything's so fresh and good, like that the bread has no preservatives, but she said preservativos instead of conservadores, and so she actually told them that the bread's so good, it doesn't have any condoms in it. Oh, that sounds yeah. just uh, not my idea of a appetizing piece of bread. Exactly. You learned a little bit of your language that way. So conservativo would be preservatives? Mm, conservador. Conservador. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. all right, Rachel, thanks. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Marty's on the line in Lincoln, Nebraska. Marty, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Have you ever uh, made a mistake overseas? Oh, I certainly have, and it was quite embarrassing. Tell us about it. It turned out to be sort of a, a business misunderstanding until I was able to clarify what was going on. I had made a trip to India, to New Delhi, to interview a candidate for a distributorship for my company's product. And there are certain qualifications that I, I must find out and sort of an interview process to qualify a company or individuals who want to distribute and sell our, our company's products. And, for example, I want to know... Are they able to make repairs, you know, to our products should a customer buy them? Sure. So during the course of the interview process, I began to ask some questions. And each time I asked a question, the response that I got immediately was their heads would shake back and forth. Like no. Indicating no. And about the third no in a row, things were not going well. I was thinking, well, this is not not the company for me. Uh, So I called for a break. And I took aside one of the, the gentlemen that I'd gotten to know a little bit better, and I explained that, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to go too well. Everybody's saying no. Everybody's indicating that they're not interested. And then he explained to me that that, that mannerism, that shaking of the head, means yes. Now, what country was this in? This was in India. In India. Okay. So there's many countries where you can have that fundamental difference, that shaking the head no is like Yes. And I had thought I did my homework, but not deep enough. So did you go home with the deal? Yes, I did. Once we got things clarified and I understood where we stood, uh, they were a good company for us. And when you got home, your boss said, uh, was it a successful trip? And you shook your head no. (laughs) (laughs) Great story, Marty. And I think that's a good heads up for all of us when we're in the Indian subcontinent to remember. Certainly taught me a lesson. Yes, yes. All right. Thanks for your call, Marty. You bet. Thank you. Marilyn's on the phone from Moscow, Idaho. Marilyn, thanks for your call. Hi. Do you have a lesson you've learned overseas that you'd like to share? Well, I do. Uh, We went um, to Turkey, had a wonderful time, and 
we were in a small uh, village, just a wonderful village with all the fruits and vegetables and children. And there was this marvelous old woman who just had years of experience on her face. And she was sitting with them. Uh, you know, the inside-out goat um, stomach with the cheese in it. And it was just such a perfect picture. And I held my camera up to indicate, because, of course, I can't say in Turkish, can I take your picture? And um, I held my camera up, and she threw her head in an, uh, kind of an up-and-down movement, and I thought she was saying yes. And I happily took my picture, and she gave me the stare of death. Um, honestly, I'm thinking, I did something terribly wrong. And so I asked about it later. Well, apparently when you throw your head back like that in Turkey, it means no, absolutely not. And so I felt very embarrassed, of course. And, and the throwing thing. the head back, it comes back down, and it looks like a nod yes, doesn't it? Yes. Wow. Marty was in India, and they were nodding their head negative, meaning yes, and you're in Turkey, and they're nodding their head affirmative, meaning no. That's right. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So it's always good to have a guide around to ask all those important questions. Yeah, that reminds me once I was in Turkey with one of our groups, and I was was just in a spunky, adventurous mood, and we were on the border of Georgia, way over in the east of Turkey, after the Soviet Union fell apart, and I just wanted to get our group into Georgia a little bit, and I thought, well, what the heck, we'll, uh, we'll see how far we get. And we left our bus, and it was it was raining, and we're walking through all these puddles. And this was, the guards were like, they looked like Boy Scouts with no medals on their uniforms. They were just not very imposing looking. And we kept going deeper and deeper into the border, and I kept saying, uh, Georgia, or no problem. And they say, no problem, no problem, no problem. So we got deeper and deeper, and finally I realized they were saying, no, problem. You see, it was like... <laughs> No, you can't go. This is a problem. But I, I understood it as no, no problem. Uh, so when we're in Turkey, especially, you meet a lot of people, don't you? And uh, they're bold. Turks just want to make it happen one way or another. And you can get yourself into a yes problem, I think, if you're not careful. Well, the truth is the people there are so wonderful and they are so nice that you just think anyone would be accommodating. But this woman was obviously very traditional and yep. and everything. So, well, I'm certainly glad you lived to tell your story. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there is a sensitivity in Turkey. The people are just dear. They're wonder- One of the greatest things about Turkey is the people you meet. But some of them are very sensitive about uh, photography. And there's even a religious thing uh, among some people. They think when you snap their picture, you might be capturing their spirit that might make it tough for them to get uh, eternal life, or I don't completely understand it, but there is that sort of uh, consideration. Well, I um, I thought, well, I, I destroyed the picture. I never showed it to a soul, thinking, well, maybe her, her soul will be salvaged that way. You Good know? for you, uh, Marilyn. That was a yeah, thoughtful right. thing to do. <laughs> well, thanks for your uh, report on uh, shaking your head the wrong way in Turkey. Happy travels. Bye-bye. No, no, no. William in Vacaville, California, emails us, and he said, Just a note for you all. Our numerous faux pas all have one common theme. They provide us laughs forever. They are never forgotten pleasures. William, that's a great note to sign off on as we remember when we travel. We're all beginners, and we make mistakes, and we learn from them, and we laugh with the locals as they laugh, I hope, with and not at us. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had help this week from Minnesota Public Radio, and Gretchen Straub read our listener travel haiku. Find out when other stations around the country air travel with Rick Steves. There's a list at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves.
My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.